0: Well, remain standing, if you would, and take out uh, your copy of that precious book that God has given to us, that word that he has breathed out and delivered to us that we might know him, might know ourselves, uh, might know his will, and turn that Bible to the gospel according to Mark and to chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 27 through 33 this morning, wrapping up our look at chapter 11 as we continue marching through this record of the life and the ministry of Christ. Mark chapter 11, I'll read beginning in verse 27. Let us give heed as this is the word of God. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray as we get ready to look at this passage. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Spirit, who is our teacher in regard to the things of your Word, and we we pray that, that he would indeed teach us. We pray that your Spirit would work in the weak vessel who stands to proclaim your Word, and we pray that we all would humble ourselves before your Word as we hear it proclaimed in our hearing this morning. We pray that through this word that we would be instructed, that we would be challenged, that we would be edified, Lord, and above all, that you would be glorified. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. When someone steps into our lives and interferes with our lives in some way I think it would be a fair statement to say that we very often don't like that very much all right Uh, there's an old reaction to someone doing that I've I've both heard it and I've used it and it goes like this who died and made you boss uh, it's just another way of saying, who made you boss over me? Because that's really the concern. Or, or to put it even more bluntly, uh, kindly but out of my business. We don't like people coming in and seeming to exercise authority over us when they don't really have that authority. Now, there are times when people, and sometimes people is us, uh, who do butt into other people's business when it is perhaps not their place, though there's definitely a better way to respond to it than what I just described. Uh, there are people that, that do that, that assume a position of authority that is really not theirs. But we do have to remember, alongside of that, that that, that it is God who has set up structures of authority in in various spheres of this life. There are authorities. In order to maintain order as God has established it in His world, there are those in authority and there are those under authority. In the home, there are parents and there are children. And in that God-established structure, the parents are the ones who are in authority and the children are those who are under authority. Now there's no doubt that many of the problems in the world today is because parents have forgotten that or chosen to ignore that that structure and that they've relinquished that authority and really turned God's design in that in that area on its head. The same could be said about marriage. That's another place where there is a God-ordained structure, a God-ordained authority structure. Very specific um, roles of authority in the home, in the husband and wife dynamic. The husband is to love his wife. He is to care for her. He is to protect her. He is to work for her sanctification. He's to sacrifice himself, his will, for her good. In short, as Paul said, he is to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And in the home, by God, the husband has been given the responsibility of having the authority in the home. The wife is, and this is straight from God's breathed out word, She is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. And in that authority structure, again, given by God, and again, straight here from God's word in Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit submit in everything to their husbands. That's the way God has ordained that structure, that authority structure. The same goes for the workplace. There are those that are in authority, there are those who are under authority. In the civil arena, it's true. In the church, it is true. There are those in authority and there are those under authority. And notice that as I have mentioned that that authority is given by God. Now, we seem not to have too much of a problem with that when we are the ones in authority. But we tend to get a little bent out of shape sometime when we are the ones under authority. And when we are the ones in authority and someone comes along and challenges that authority, well, it's then that we wonder who died and made you boss. This morning we have a lesson before us about authority, a question about authority and the the source of authority. We have a lesson here about the rejection of authority. Uh, All of that about the authority in the end of Jesus. Remember, as we come here to our text this morning, that we are in the first half of the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his clearing of the temple have again drawn the attention of the Jewish leaders, and not in a good way. Um, Verse 18 of chapter 11 tell us that the chief priests and the scribes heard um, his comments when he cleared the temple out, and he Chasten them, he said, that this is to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And this text here says that the chief priests and the scribes heard this and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And this passage that we are looking at this morning really begins a series of confrontations that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders. Uh, that result from those things, from His triumphal entry and the, the clearing of the temple. Jesus and His disciples, Mark tells us in verse 27, came again to Jerusalem. They came again. Remember that, that Jesus and His disciples, with all the bustle and, and the, the, the very busy city of Jerusalem being the time of the Passover, that they have been staying outside of the city about a mile, mile and a half away in the, the town of Bethany and coming back into town each morning. And Mark tells us that that on this morning they've come again to Jerusalem, and he goes on to say that Jesus was walking in the temple. We'll see here that Jesus is concentrating much of his activity during this final week in the temple. This episode that we're looking at this morning uh, takes place on Tuesday of the week, and this is already the third time that Mark has recorded that Jesus has been in the temple. As he's there this morning uh, walking in the temple, likely he is, as before, in the court of the Gentiles, that large area. In fact, quite possibly, he's in that area of the temple known as the, the porch of Solomon, which would be a nice shaded area around the outside of that court, an area in which to walk and to teach. And no doubt... As always, when Jesus teaches, there is a crowd around. Always a crowd. Jesus never without a crowd uh, wanting to listen to him, wanting to hear him. And among those who have come on this morning or this day to hear Jesus speak is a particular group of men with a very particular purpose. Look at verse 27. It says, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. These three groups, we've seen them before. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They make up the, the highest court in Palestine known as the Sanhedrin. There were the scribes that were a part of this. They're mentioned here. They would be mostly Pharisees, experts in the law. There are the elders. They were sort of the the laymen of of the group, but they came generally from the the Jewish aristocracy, the wealthy uh, class of Jews. And then there were the chief priests. Uh, That group was made up of former chief priests or high priests, and they were usually from the group known as the Sadducees. And these, this group was the most powerful, um, they were the most powerful men in this court known as the Sanhedrin. One of their number was known as the captain of the temple. And he supervised the temple proceedings. He would supervise uh, the things that went on in the temple. He was the commander of the temple guard, the temple police it's interesting here that mark refers to these members of the Sanhedrin by naming those constituent parts those three groups interesting because Jesus himself in the first of those three predictions of his suffering and death that he was going to um, that awaited him in Jerusalem Jesus said that those things that his suffering his death would come about by the actions of the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes. And now here they are. So picture the scene. Jesus is walking and teaching in the temple, and up comes this group. Maybe they wait for Jesus to have a moment. Maybe they interrupt what Jesus is doing. We don't know. But we do know what they wanted. And they stated in no uncertain terms there in verse 28. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Who gave you the authority, Jesus, to do these things? Now what things are they talking about? I've already mentioned it. it almost certainly the primary thing is Jesus' activity in the temple the day before uh, when Jesus cleared the temple of the buyers and the sellers and the money changers. In fact, we see up there in verses 15 through 17 that he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And likely the hubbub that Jesus had caused when he came into town on Sunday is also a part of this as as well, what we call the triumphal entry. And perhaps, I think probably, on their minds was also more generally Jesus teaching his activity in general, um, which has drawn their attention on past occasions. Even to the point of considering how they might destroy him back way back in chapter 3. Now, as I just mentioned, the, the chief priests, uh, that part of the, the of the, the group, that chief priests, the chief priests were in charge of the temple, of what went on there. Well, think about that. They're in charge, and now here comes this itinerant rabbi from Galilee and he comes in and he presumes to take control and to make proclamations of what can and can't be done in the temple and to drive out the the activity to disrupt it totally the the activity of the temple and so their question to Jesus is a question of authority namely by what authority Jesus are you doing these things Or who gave you the authority to do it? Now the issue of Jesus' authority has been around as long as the ministry of Jesus. As far back as chapter 1 in Mark's gospel. In fact, we've been told that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And why? The text says, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The people recognized authority in Jesus. They recognized that there was something about Jesus that was different than the teachers that they had on hand, that they were used to. And they identified that difference as one of authority. Authority in his teaching, authority in his activity. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But here the Jewish leaders come and they question that authority specifically his authority to the actions that he took within the temple of the Lord. And they demand to know who Jesus thought he was and under what authority he presumed to do what he did. Who died and made him boss. And now Jesus gives them a very interesting answer to their question which amounts in the end to no answer at all. And we might ask, well, why didn't Jesus just answer them? Well, the answer to that is the the mission of Jesus, the timing of the mission of Jesus. The answer to that is that although, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus, our the timing of his full revelation of who he was, though that time is now drawing near, it is not, still not quite yet. Now we saw a few weeks ago, didn't we, that that the blind man in Jericho began the revelation of, of who Jesus was when he cried out over and over, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Using a title, of, of Jesus son of David that was equivalent to calling him the Messiah then the people we read about who followed Jesus into Jerusalem those who came out of the city to meet Jesus when he came into the city cried out to the consternation of the Pharisees blessed is the coming of our father of the kingdom of our father David Hosanna in the highest another way of equating Jesus with the Messiah, the anointed one, come to rule over the people of God in accordance with the covenant that God made with David. We can go back even further, remember, that even Peter, when Jesus asked him, Who do you say that I am? Peter replied, You are the Christ. That is, you are the Messiah. Which brought to the lips of Jesus a blessing for Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But in all of those situations, notice, Jesus is identified as the Messiah by others, not by himself. And that's going to continue, even as Jesus in this episode and the ones to follow in chapter 12 makes clear that to those who have ears to hear who he is, but doesn't explicitly say it until he does. And when he finally does, he will say it, interestingly enough, before the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 14. And we'll see when we get there why Jesus waits so long to speak it out of his own mouth. So here we have another positive but veiled answer by jesus that he gives here a positive but veiled answer to this question regarding his authority here there is still concealment of jesus messianic identity at least in regard again to the direct unequivocal statements from jesus that will come later and as at so many points in his confrontations with the religious leaders for us who read it, this is a very satisfying demonstration of Jesus' wisdom. It just brings a smile to our face when, when Jesus deals with these people who, who are obviously coming with um, motives that are not pure, not coming for information. But when Jesus handles them as wisely as he does, it's, it's just wonderful to read. And here he does the same thing. And it's a satisfying demonstration of Jesus' wisdom as he deals so brilliantly with them that they just have no answer to give. So in response to their question about the source of Jesus' authority, verse 29 says that Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now we've seen Jesus teach in parables before. And we've learned that the, the parables were meant to, to be clear to those who had been given the ears to hear and to confuse those who didn't. And here Jesus' answer regarding his, his authority is kind of the same thing. Do the Sanhedrin have ears to hear, to understand what Jesus is going to say here, to receive what He's saying? Well, He will show whether they do or not by their answer, as Jesus said in John seventeen or seven seventeen, that if anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And He gives them, Jesus does, what may seem at first a very odd answer or a very odd question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now let me give you a couple points to uh, help us understand that question a little bit. First is that Jesus is using here a figure of speech um, called a synecdoche, in which one uses a part of something to represent the whole. Uh, Think of a phrase like hired hands. You're hiring the whole person, not the hands um, only, but it's a way of of referring to them. And it's the same thing here with what Jesus is saying. So here, when Jesus speaks of the baptism of John, he's not just talking about the baptism, those acts. He's talking about John's ministry in general. And it makes sense, because after all, John's ministry was sort of identified with his, his baptism. His name comes down to us as John the Baptist. But his ministry, of course, was broader. We looked at that back when we looked at at John the Baptist and his death and his ministry. He was most importantly, remember, the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. John 16.8 tells us that there was a man sent from God, and he came to bear witness about the light. He announced his arrival, the arrival of, of Christ as the Messiah. He was a preacher of repentance and of forgiveness of sin, Luke 3.3 3 tells us that. He was, Jesus told us himself, a prophet, and Jesus said, more than a prophet, adding that among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And then, of course, John was a baptizer. Uh, baptizer of all manner of people as a sign of repentance and as a sign of the coming baptism which the Holy Spirit um, would perform uh, through the work of Christ. So Jesus is talking here when he says this about the overall ministry of John the Baptist. And there's a, a close connection between the work of John and the work of Christ. We'll see that a little more as we continue on. But that's the first thing about this question. That Jesus was using this figure of speech. The second point is that when Jesus says, was the baptism of John from heaven, what he is saying is, was John's ministry, was John's authority from God? Was his ministry from God? Using heaven in place of God was a, a, a Jewish way, a, a Hebrew way of speaking, not wanting to say the name of God. So he's saying, was John's ministry from God or was it from man? Now, in asking that question, Jesus puts the representatives of the Sanhedrin firmly on the horns of a dilemma which they themselves recognize and from which they are unable to extricate themselves. Their answer to this question will, in fact, require them to take a positive position on Jesus himself, and that's the point. So how do they handle it? How do they handle this dilemma? Well, verses 31 and 32 tell us. We read that they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. See, they're sharp enough to, to realize that Jesus has put them in a difficult position. And so they they confer uh, about it among themselves. They have a, a huddle to, to figure out how to answer this. And it's not because they don't have an answer. Not, not because they don't have an answer to the question, but because they know they can't give the answer that they have to the question. They can't give the real answer that they have. They can't give the answer that they would like to give. In fact, the word that's used here for... Uh, that's translated disgust is a word that's always used in, in the gospel to, to describe people who are trying to get themselves out of one of these dilemmas that Jesus' words put them into. And so from the beginning here, they've sort of abandoned their plan, which was to, to trap Jesus, to get him uh, in trouble by the way he answered. They, they've abandoned that already, and now they're just trying to find a way out. So they reason. If we say from heaven that John's ministry was from God, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him? And the fact that Jesus could ask them that question shows that they did not believe him. If we say that John the Baptist's ministry was from God and that he was, in fact, a prophet of God, which is what the Jewish people believed concerning John, then they would open themselves up to the charge of unbelief because they didn't believe that John was a prophet. But more than that, get this, if they confessed that John the Baptist was, as the Apostle John wrote, a man sent from God, the bottom line is that they would have to recognize then and say the same thing about Jesus. If they believed John, they would have to or they would not have had to ask Jesus the question that they asked him about his authority because they would know it. We've seen what the John the Baptist ministry was all about. It was about pointing people to Christ, preparing the way for the Messiah. Fulfilling that prophecy of Malachi 3 that God would send his messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord who was to come. That he would come in the spirit of Elijah and and prepare that way. So if John was sent by the Lord, by God, as the forerunner of the Messiah... Then the scribes and the elders, if they believed that his ministry was from God, would have to believe what he said. And what did John say? What did John say about Jesus? He spoke of Jesus as he who ranks above me because he was before me. He spoke of Jesus as one whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He said that it was necessary that Jesus be exalted even as he, John, recedes into the background of history. And most importantly, in John 1.29 and again in John 1.36, John, we read, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of God. Of the world. In his work as the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist made very clear who he or who the Messiah was and what the response to Jesus should be. But the chief priests, the elders, they couldn't say that. They didn't believe that. But they couldn't say it because Jesus would then call them on their unbelief. But, and here's the dilemma, look at verse 32. But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. Shall we say from man in their conniving, desperate attempt to get out of this with their own place intact, they agree that they also can't say that Jesus or that John the Baptist's ministry was just from man. They can't say he was a charlatan, they can't say he was a phony. And here we really see the true hearts of the Sanhedrin in regard to Jesus. They can't say that his ministry was from man. Why? Mark tells us they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet. John was very popular, remember, among the people. Representing, as he did, the resumption of God speaking to to his people, as well as him being the harbinger of the coming of the Messiah. And the Sanhedrin were afraid of that. They were afraid of the people. Actually, they were very afraid. Mark doesn't say it here, but Luke adds this detail. Luke says, but if we say from man all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. It's interesting that there's another godless man who had the exact same response to John the Baptist. Over in Matthew 14.5, when John the Baptist stood up to Herod about his marriage to his brother's wife, Matthew writes this about Herod. Though he wanted to put him to death... He feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So the Sanhedrin here can't say what they didn't believe, that he he was sent by God, and they can't say what they really did believe, that John's ministry was from man because they feared the response of the people toward them. They didn't know what to say. And so they feel that the only way out is to simply claim ignorance to just not answer, which is what they ultimately do. In verse 33, they answered Jesus, we don't know. These are the, this is the highest court of the Jews. These are the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the elders. These are the experts in the law. The scribes were numbered among these. Their answer, I don't know. We know, don't we? Where did Jesus' authority come from to do the things that he did? Really, there are two answers. One, first of all, his in his essence of who he is, his authority as the Son of God is, is innate. He is his own authority. As creator, as sovereign God blessed forever, he possesses absolute and unassailable authority. So there's that. But from another angle, in regard to Jesus coming, incarnate Christ, uh, divine and human in one person, especially as that divine and human Messiah, the servant of God, Jesus' authority to do all of the things that he did came from his Father. Jesus is always very clear about that, isn't he? He is very clear that he has come because he has been sent. I have come, he said, down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the work of redemption, Jesus' authority to do all of the things that he did comes from his Father who gave him the authority to do it. In line with the Father's will, which is not in any way different than Jesus' will, And that authority is far-reaching. In John 5.27, Jesus is given the authority to judge the world. In John 17.2, He is given the authority to give eternal life to all that the Father has given to Him. In John 10.17 and 18, He is given the authority to lay down His life and the authority to take it up again. He says, this command I received from my Father. In Mark 2.10, we read that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We also see in the life of Jesus that he has been given authority over disease, over the demons, even over death. And it's ultimately seen in Matthew 28.18, which is really an echo of what we read this morning in our Old Testament reading from Daniel 7. In Matthew 28.18, Right at the end of the book of Matthew, remember Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So if the Jewish leaders had believed John, they would have had to have believed Jesus. Because John ever and always pointed people to the Lord Jesus. John was the lesser light pointing people to the true light like a neon sign pointing to the sun. But beloved, we must ultimately deal with the question, not about the the person and the ministry of John the Baptist, but we, as Jesus is doing here to to these uh, rulers who have come to him, we must deal with the question of the person and the work of Jesus. The Jews that day were able to evade Jesus' question. But they weren't and we're not, you're not able to evade God's judgment. Each person has to answer this question, what do we do with Jesus? Is Jesus' authority that he exercised? Is is Jesus' ministry that he did? Is Jesus himself from God or man? And the truth is, he is from heaven. The Son of God come to seek and to save that which was lost. Son of God who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And since Jesus is from heaven with all authority to judge and to save. The question comes down to this. Will you believe him? Will you believe him? Or will you, like countless others, not bow the knee to Jesus? Not bow the knee to him as Savior and Lord because you doubt his authority. His authority to demand obedience. His authority, as we saw, to lay down his life as a substitute. His authority to take his life up again in the resurrection. His authority to offer and to give eternal life. Beloved, I urge you today, don't make the same mistake that the chief priests made. Submit yourself to Christ. Confess him as Lord and Savior. The Bible says you will do that now or you will do it on the last day. You won't have a choice. God will have his son worshipped on the last day. But if you wait till then, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord won't help you. If you do it now, it will. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do it now. When doing so leads to eternal life. Recognize the authority of Jesus, which is absolute, because he is God, sent from God to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. And to that, let us say, Amen. Our Father, we thank you for Christ. We will eternally thank you for Christ. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist, whose life was dedicated to pointing people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that we would that we would listen, that we would hear, that we would believe. And we ask this in his name. Amen.